Good morning, everyone. It is Wednesday morning. I hope that you have had a very safe and healthy week so far. Um, we're going to give our friends a minute to join us. I see people are hopping on right now. So we're going to give everybody just a few minutes to join us before we get really rolling. So like I said, it's Wednesday. Today is the last day of Bible study. Can you believe it? It is the last day of the study for this year. Seems just like the other day that we started. I'm sorry that we're not going to be together much longer, but I'm glad that you are here with me today. So today is the final day of our Genesis study. We are going to be looking at chapters 46 through 50. 50 is the last chapter of Genesis. Um, so we're going to be closing up shop today. Um, and today is the last time we get to ask questions about Genesis this school year. So as we begin this study, I want to challenge you to think up questions that you have had along the way. Think up good questions about what you want to know about Genesis um, and ask them below. And as always, I want to remind you that there's a link above stmichael.org slash rbs. That's where you can find old lessons, um, previous lessons that we have done both in Genesis and also in years past. Um, so catch up there over the summer. And down below in the comments, let us know you are here. Let us know where you're from, especially if you're not from St. Michael here in Dallas. Um, we'd love to know where you are from so we can keep in touch this summer. So as I pull up my... As I pull up my notes, I want to one more time encourage you to join us and to share this, you know, have a watch party, do whatever you want like that. Um, and we'll gather some more people together as we finish. Okay. To start off, let's open with a prayer. We already looks like we've got a decent crowd here now. Let's go ahead and jump in. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for bringing us together today. We thank you that you have given us the opportunity to study your word, to deepen our faith by rooting ourselves in your sacred story. May we be inspired by the study we do today, by the lessons that we share, to be your hands and feet in the world and to help extend your kingdom here on earth. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends. So quick reminder, um, as we've done in weeks past, Monica Rosser is here. She's going to be moderating the comments down below. So if you've got questions or comments, please feel free to share them down below, or she will post her email address, mrosser at stmichael.org. If you don't feel like you want to ask your question in public, she can receive your emails right now, and then she will be kind of texting me on the side, helping me maintain the comments and the questions so we can make this worth all our wiles. So today is the day for questions. Ask your questions as we finish this Genesis study. So today we do the last few chapters of Genesis. And as you remember from last week, Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers and his brothers now have gone to get their father, Jacob, and bring him and all the brothers and the whole family over to Egypt so Joseph can effectively protect them during the famine. Now, there are four sections in today's study, so I want to start there so we've got our scope of the lesson. Section one, we're going to go back to Jacob. We're going to check in with Jacob, get him over, and kind of get him settled. Then we've got a section on becoming slaves, right? We know, of course, that what's coming down the road is that the Israelites, the Hebrew people, are going to become slaves in Egypt. And fast forward 400 years, when we get to Exodus, Moses arrives on the scene and Moses is going to help bring them out of their bondage in Egypt and take them right up to the promised land, kind of return them to their homeland. 
So they have to become slaves. We're going to have a little section of that. That's section two. Section three, we're going to talk about Jacob's blessings. Jacob gives lots of blessings at the very end of his life. And a few of them are important for us to note um, in general for the whole biblical story. And lastly, we've got the end of life, both life of Jacob and the life of Joseph. And so those are our four sections. We're going to begin with chapter 46 of Genesis, and we're going to go back to Jacob. So grab your Bibles, chapter 46, verse 1. Remember, Israel is Jacob. When Israel set out on his journey with all that he had to come to Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's own hand shall close your eyes. So we begin this study with these first few verses from chapter 46. Jacob has learned that Joseph is now alive, Joseph his favorite. And he's, I guess we could say he's interested in going to Egypt, but he probably feels a little reticence about whether he should go to Egypt or not. And so he goes and he prays, right? Any big decision, we should pray. And Jacob goes and prays and God speaks to Jacob and says, it's me, God, and this is a good idea. And I'm going to go with you and everything's going to be great. You're going to be made a great nation. That's an important moment for Jacob. He kind of gets God's seal of approval to move the family down to Egypt. We know from uh, chapter after chapter after chapter that place matters, right? Abraham was told to go to that place. Isaac stayed in that place. Jacob returned to that place, right? They are rooted in place. And so moving the family to Egypt is not a small decision. So when Jacob goes and gets God's blessing, that really matters. So God says, go on, I will go with you and I will make you a great nation. Now, we've noted in the past few weeks, um, I forget, someone asked a week or two ago, how God could bless a movement from Canaan to Egypt when being in Egypt means they're going to be in slavery and then will have to be taken out of Egypt. So you're sort of setting up the Israelites to have this dramatic hardship around both slavery and also, as we remember, when Moses goes to free the people from Egypt, there are plagues and pestilence, and it's not easy for the Israelites. And so in effect, this story is setting up something that will be really hard for the Israelites. I think it's important for us to remember the context here. The Jewish people have established a kingdom, the kingdom has devolved, and they have been taken into exile. They know all this stuff is going to happen. If you were a Jewish storyteller, and you were looking to tell the whole story of your people, effectively the story of, of your relationship with God and being chosen up to the present day, is it better, and I, I use better um, intentionally, is it better <clears throat> that the way you would tell that story is that God wasn't involved or that God really blessed and even directed the path that brought you where you were today, even if that path was hard. And I think that's effectively where we have the Israelite storytellers, the Jewish storytellers in exile are constructing this story very intentionally to show that God was present the whole time. Now, God's presence may have helped, and God's presence may have hurt. Regardless, God was present. And that is very important for the Jewish people. We see that in their writings, in their commentaries, in their midrash, and all of that stuff, God's presence is not what fails. It is our humanity that fails. And so, consistent with that, the Jewish storytellers are making sure that God is there every step of the way, even if God's presence is leading them down a path that in the future at some point will be painful. All right, so in those first verses of chapter 46, we return to Jacob. In the last few chapters, 
Our story has really revolved around Joseph. Joseph has been that core gravity that has driven the story. Now, in these opening verses of chapter 46, we return to Jacob. We are reminded that, yes, Joseph is an important character, and Joseph has been interesting. Joseph has been entertaining and intriguing, and the story has been suspenseful. But really, this is a story about Jacob. Jacob is this massive umbrella that goes over this entire story. Jacob as the one who has inherited the promise of God. And even though Joseph has been off doing stuff, the brothers have been off doing stuff. Jacob is really the trunk of this big story tree. So we return to Jacob and we find that Jacob's response is to move his whole family to Egypt and to actually become the driver, the big story that takes all of the Israelites to Egypt. So chapter 46 reminds us that this story is not one of individuals. This story is one of generations. This is a story about a big family, a big family with lots of clans, a big family with lots of generations, but that it's about one whole family. And this is sort of different for us as modern readers. I think most of us are, are typically attracted to stories that involve a single person, right? We kind of like the journey of a single person. That is a trope, I suppose, that we are very used to. This story of the Bible is something that is much bigger than that. And it's multi-generational. One individual is never as important as the whole family. And we see that very present in the way the storytellers are telling this story. So I see one question. What made Joseph's Pharaoh so accommodating and the Pharaoh of Moses so cruel? Oh, that's a great question. So what Michelle's referencing is that in the story of, in Exodus, we see that Pharaoh's heart is hardened right? Part of the exchange between Moses and Pharaoh in Exodus is that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And we see multiple times where the storyteller says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So although yes, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, Pharaoh is the human person present there doing that action. It's important that we acknowledge that God's influence on Pharaoh is critical and a very big part of the story. Here, we've got a Pharaoh who effectively loves Joseph. Um, Joseph is not only good um, and has made Pharaoh wealthy, we'll see just how wealthy Pharaoh becomes in the next chapter, Um, but Joseph is also loyal. Joseph has consistently been loyal to the people in his life. And I think that Pharaoh likely values the loyalty and the expertise and the divination and all of the above. And so by extension, it's not a real hardship on Pharaoh to be kind to Joseph's family in order to keep Joseph in uh, doing the work that Joseph does, right? Pharaoh's the ultimate power, but let's be honest— Joseph is the one that knows the way to go, knows the path forward, and keeps Pharaoh in power. And so keeping Joseph in place, effectively kind of keeping Joseph happy, is in Pharaoh's best interest. And so we get a Pharaoh in this story who seems not only generous, but we'll see soon when Jacob dies and Joseph goes back to bury Jacob, that Pharaoh and his court mourn. Joseph's father. They, of course, they don't really know Jacob, but they know Joseph. They love Joseph. Joseph's father dies. They mourn with Joseph. Joseph has effectively become Egyptian, right? We know that Joseph married an Egyptian um, who was a very high-class Egyptian, and he has had Egyptian children raised in Egypt. And so Joseph's really part of the group. And even though Joseph's family may not come off as Egyptian, It's not a far stretch to say that Pharaoh really saw Joseph as being kind of one of their own. Fast forward 400 years, and we get the Hebrew people are far removed from the Egyptians, right? The Israelites are, they are are not us. And we see a hint of that when Jacob and his family move into Egypt, they are 
shepherds. They're herdsmen. And Egyptians don't like the herdsmen. And so Joseph cleverly um, directs Jacob and his brothers to settle outside of Cairo in a place called Goshen. And of course, Goshen plays a big role as the place where um, the Israelites multiply and become a big nation in Exodus. Um, But the reason they get to Goshen is because they're kind of, um, it seems a little cheap to call them low class, Um, but in effect, they're the workers, right? They're the kind of smelly, hardworking people in the field that the upper class Egyptians really don't want to be around. You know, they're smelly, they're dirty, they work with animals. The Egyptians are cleaner, more reserved, more separate. Um, And my goodness, do we not understand that? Of course we understand that, right? It's kind of like jobs we don't want to do are done by people who often don't look like us. And so, I mean, humanity is not changed all that much. Um, Egyptians had the money, they had the class, they had the education, they had sort of the structure, and here come the outsiders, right? The outsiders show up, and it's nice to have the outsiders because they do the work that the Egyptians don't necessarily want to do, but that they benefit from, but they also don't want these outsiders kind of at their table for dinner, walking around and going to the same shops or eating in the same places, why don't you go settle over there, right? We're going to give you that place over there. And my, my, has humanity not changed all that much? So that brings us to the end of effectively chapter 46 in the first section of today's story. So as a reminder, I'm sorry, there's something in my eye. As a reminder, I want you to make sure you've got your comments and your questions down below so that Monica can pass them off to me and we can direct our study as well as we can. So let's look at section two. Section two, we effectively go right into chapter 47, and the famine becomes more severe in Egypt. So if we look at a timeline, by the time Jacob comes to Egypt, we're a couple or three years into the seven-year famine, right? We noted a couple chapters ago that the first year Jacob's brothers, I'm sorry, Joseph's brothers come to Egypt, they buy some stuff, they make it home, but they've got all their money with them. So it's the second year that they come back a second time with Benjamin. Then Joseph reveals himself, they go back, they get Jacob, they all move over. So you're talking about Max three years into the seven-year famine. So the famine's only going to get worse, right? First couple, three years, it's bad. The last couple, three years, it's really bad. And so let's look at chapter 47. We're going to jump to chapter 47, verse 13. So find 47, 13, after the famine becomes more severe. Let's read. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. The land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money to be found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Now jump down to verse 20. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. All the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe upon them, and the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made slaves of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Okay, we'll stop there. Now, it does not take a high-level economist to understand what is going on here, right? The famine has hit everyone. The famine is complete and total in the whole region well outside of Egypt. So what happens first? People take whatever money they have and they go to Pharaoh, to Joseph, and they buy the grain that Joseph has stockpiled. So let's talk for a second about how Joseph has stockpiled this grain. What we see in chapter 47 is a structure we didn't really, we weren't privy to until now, We might, as modern people, think of Pharaoh in Egypt as being the total owner of everything, just complete universal director of all. But the way that the storyteller is telling this story, Pharaoh was effectively king, but everyone apparently ran their own stuff. So people had land, they grew stuff on their land, they traded, they bartered, they sold— And Pharaoh was just 
the wealthy person, but he didn't supersede the individuality of people growing their own stuff. Once the fa- once Joseph understands that there will be seven years of surplus and then seven years of famine, Joseph's technique is very clear. While everybody is growing more than they need, Joseph knows that they're going to run out soon. So Joseph is not only stockpiling Pharaoh's direct grain, Joseph is on Pharaoh's behalf going out and buying up all of the extra grain that people have. Now, what happens with supply and demand? When supply is really high and demand is pretty low, that makes stuff cheap. So Joseph, on behalf of Pharaoh, is buying a lot of cheap grain from all the people all over Egypt who are growing way more than they need, right? And so effectively, as the economy is churning along, the Egyptians are, as you know, my people used to say, living high on the hog, right? So the Egyptians are loving life. They had everything they need, and they're selling their extra grain to Pharaoh on the cheap because, sure, why not? Look at how much their land is producing. Pharaoh can buy up all the grain he wants. Joseph stockpiles this grain for cheap. Then the famine hits. And when the famine hits, and all of these people who were living high suddenly start to struggle, they have no other choice than to go to Joseph and buy their grain back. Now, had they saved their grain, they wouldn't have had to go to Joseph or to Pharaoh and buy it back. But it was a lot easier to get some money for all this extra that they had, even though it wasn't a lot of money, and just spend it, right? They wanted to go buy all the stuff and live the life. Joseph took that conservatism and stored away as much as he possibly could. And now the Egyptians are having to use what little money they have to buy the grain back. And do you think the grain is the same price? No, no. The grain has been marked up because now demand is high and supply is low. Joseph, brilliant economist. And so he goes and he sells all this grain back at a markup and Pharaoh begins to get very wealthy. And so what we see here at the beginning of chapter 47 is that people used their money to buy the grain for a few years. But then Joseph had collected all the money to be found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan and on and on and on. So what was left? Well, people still had their land. So maybe they didn't have the money to buy the grain, but they still owned their land. It was either give away or sell their land or starve. And so one by one, all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe upon them and the land became Pharaoh's. It's a little line, but it's very important because now one by one, as this famine continues, Pharaoh's not only becoming wealthy in money, currency, cash, Pharaoh's becoming wealthy in land. And one by one by one by one, Pharaoh picks off and becomes the owner of all the land in Egypt. Amazing, isn't it? Pharaoh has, because of this famine, because of Joseph's vision and good management, now come to own everything. And as for the people, he made slaves of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Now, let's take a minute to say slaves is a little strong. We may hear slaves and think of something akin to our own American history. Um, Really, we should read this as sharecroppers. Um, Yeah, so I'm not going to put lipstick on that pig. It's not good for the Egyptians, right? They are left in a dire position where all they can do is sell their land to Pharaoh, but they don't become slaves as we might hear slave, what they really do is they become sharecroppers. So they still work the land they used to own that Pharaoh now owns. And Pharaoh asks that they give 20% of whatever they raise, whatever profit they gain from their land to Pharaoh. They get to keep 80%. And so not a bad deal if the other option is that you starve to death. So effectively, Pharaoh has taken all of this land away from everybody 
and in exchange lets them stay there, work their land, and give him 20%. Pharaoh is becoming crazy wealthy and powerful, and it changes the whole dynamic. And the irony of this story is this includes Joseph's family. This includes Jacob's whole family tree, right? This is not just the blue blood Egyptians. This is everyone living in Egypt, including all of the Israelites. And so Pharaoh is just sucking in all of this power and all of this influence so that by the end of this famine, he is everything. All right. So that takes us to the end of section two. Any questions or comments about that? If you have them, then I see Monica just posted. So either make the comment below or send her an email. Um, Oh, apparently Monica said um, some people are having trouble with the feed. Um, Just so you know, um, Monica's not having any trouble with her feed. So it may be something kind of at your house. Sorry about that. Um, It looks like we're still good here. So we'll just press on. Um, Let's see. Section three. Now we get to Jacob's blessings. So Jacob's blessings are important. We have studied this long enough to know that when a father or a grandfather gives a blessing, we need to pay attention. We need to perk up and know that something important is happening. And so we're going to jump to chapter 48, verse 8. So turn to 48, 8. Read if we're going to read a few chapters together. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age and he could not see well. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I did not expect to see your face, and here God has let me see your children also. Then Joseph removed them from his father's knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. Joseph took them both, Ephraim on his, in his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them near him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Let's jump to verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. Okay, now as I noted, we've been studying this long enough to know that blessings are important. Blessings are significant moments. And Jacob is seeking to bless Joseph's sons. Now, perhaps there are two reasons for Jacob to seek to bless Joseph's sons. The first is that, as I noted at the beginning of class, Joseph's sons are half Egyptian, right? Their mother is Egyptian. And so perhaps they would not have automatically been part of the family inheritance. You know, it's very likely that as they all come together in Egypt, You've got the Egyptian cousins over there, and then you've got all of the real Israelite cousins over here, which alone is not entirely true because you've got Bilhah and Zilpah and whatever, but it's not a problem. So effectively, you've got Joseph's kids are the mixed kids and maybe not quite accepted like the others. Maybe there is a little bit of talk and chatter among the other brothers that their own sons would inherit more and that Joseph's sons would not. 
And so Jacob could be seeking to put all of that to bed and to say, you know, Joseph's sons may have an Egyptian mother, but they are part of the family. They will also inherit. The other idea could be, or reason could be, that Joseph is Jacob's favorite son, right? And even though he's the 11th of 12 sons, this moment is an opportunity for Jacob to reassert his favoritism, right? We know that Jacob's favoritism of Joseph is what got Joseph in trouble in the first place. But in this moment, we see kind of this very sweet thing where Jacob says, uh, let me see, verse 11. Jacob says to Joseph, I did not expect to see your face. And here God has let me see your children also. That's a very sweet kind of moment, right? Jacob thought Joseph was dead, has thought Joseph was dead for years. And so Jacob not only gets to see Joseph alive again, but Jacob gets to see Joseph's children. I mean, it's a beautiful moment where Jacob is so just very human, right? Sounds like a grandparent who delights in their grandchildren. Now let's talk about the significance of Joseph's sons. So we've got Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh born first, Ephraim born second. But we know, as we've seen in every single story so far, that the firstborn is not going to be the one that God uses, right? So Manasseh is the firstborn, but we see a very important moment here where Jacob crosses his hands and he blesses with his right hand the secondborn, Ephraim, while Jacob blesses with his left hand the firstborn, Manasseh, which effectively puts Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. And Joseph doesn't like that, right? Joseph immediately says, no, 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 father, that's not right. And maybe Joseph's thinking, you know, he doesn't really know my sons. His eyesight is failing. He didn't grow up with them. And so these are still relatively new boys to Jacob. And so Joseph is effectively kind of trying to switch his hands back. But Jacob says, nope, this is actually what is supposed to happen. Ephraim is going to be bigger, more important than Manasseh. Now, the predetermination here on Jacob's behalf is not necessarily what's going on. Remember that the people who are writing this story have hindsight. And the people writing this story have very important kind of 2020 hindsight. I think you remember, or you may remember that last week or the week before, I talked about the kingdom period. So if we fast forward a little bit, Moses takes the people out of Egypt, they go into the promised land, they establish a kingdom, and it's a unified kingdom with David and Solomon, but then it divides. And the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom have different leadership. Ultimately, the northern kingdom is going to be run primarily by Joseph's sons' clans. So Manasseh and Ephraim, or I should flip, Ephraim and Manasseh, they're going to become the biggest clans in the northern kingdom. In the southern kingdom, the biggest clans are going to be from Judah. So Judah and Joseph's sons are the ones that establish the biggest clans in the kingdom of Israel. All of the storytellers in exile in Babylon would know that. They would have known that all that is true. And it's very possible that part of this story evolved and was tweaked and was molded to show that what actually happened was always part of the story, right? That it was always going to happen. Now, we can do whatever we want with that, but just know that sometimes we can read these and think, look, God knew, Jacob knew, and he made this prediction and it came true when perhaps we should keep in mind that the people who are telling the story had a, a lot invested in making sure anyone who read the story thought exactly that, that everything had been predetermined. And I personally have an issue with too much predetermination. I don't quite think that's how God works. So we continue the blessings all the way through chapter 49. Jacob goes from blessing Joseph's sons to blessing all of his sons, including Joseph. 
And he goes not quite in chronological order or age order, um, but he kind of goes in wife order. Um, and so you get all of Leah's sons first, then you get Zilpah Bilha's sons, then you get Rachel's sons at the end. All of that goes through chapter 49. And you get two people, Judah up in the, near the top, and then Joseph near the bottom, who get the most real estate when it comes to the blessings, right? Jacob says the most to Judah and Joseph. Now, Jacob definitely says the most to Joseph, but we all know that. Joseph is the favorite. We got it. But Judah also receives a more extensive, intentional blessing from Jacob than any of the other brothers do. And why? For exactly what I just said. They know, the storytellers know, that Joseph and Judah will become the primary clans of the northern and the southern kingdoms. And so it's important that that seem intentional, that Jacob really intended to pass on this divine blessing on the two that will become the most important two clans in the kingdom period. Now, what's interesting is if you read through those, which we don't really have to read through those, just make a note that you can read through those later. Um, the blessings are very obviously uneven. As modern readers, I would expect that you would find that unfair, right? That you would see that Jacob is showing obvious favoritism to some sons and not to others. And most parents would not, I guess without, without real explicit reason, show that kind of favoritism to some children over other children. So this is this modern sense of fairness, because we like fairness, um, is really unnecessary in this story. It's not present because they know what's going to happen, right? The storytellers know that what will happen should be connected directly. You know, they should connect the dots very directly to the way that Jacob and God, through Jacob, have intended to bless the children and ultimately their clans as they grow and develop into the kingdom period. So that comes to the end of the third section. Reminder, give me some comments or questions if you have them down below, and we'll be able to direct the rest of the study as well as possible. All right. I'll wait for a few, but we'll press on. The last section for today is about the end of life, the end of Jacob's lives, the end of Jacob's life and the end of Joseph's life. So Jacob's death is one of those deathbed moments where Jacob makes an ask of his family, in particular of Joseph. Jacob makes an ask to be buried with his ancestors. Jacob got God's okay, got God's seal of approval to move from Canaan down to Egypt, but Jacob still knows that his home, his, the, the place that God promised them is Canaan. And so perhaps living in Egypt for a time is okay, but Jacob wants to be buried in his home, buried where his father and his grandfather, his father, his father and mother and his grandfather and grandmother are buried. And so Jacob asks to be taken back to Canaan for burial. Jacob dies and is embalmed in the Egyptian way in order to be transported back to Canaan for his final burial. Joseph leads a big group of Egyptians and all back to Canaan for the burial. And I can just imagine it's like, you know, the city comes to the country, right? Where all of Pharaoh's grandeur with his chariots and his armor and his flags and his feathers and whatever go marching into this kind of hill country of Canaan in order to make a big spectacle of this burial. And people see that it's, it's quite the show. And Joseph fulfills Jacob's final request by laying him to rest where both Isaac and Abraham, as well as Rebecca and Sarah, are buried. We continue on in this last section into chapter 50, which is effectively Joseph's death scene. So now, Jacob has died, 
And the brothers begin to get worried about what Joseph's going to do, right? So when dad's alive, Joseph is doing all kinds of nice things for his whole family. But what if when dad dies, Joseph gets an inkling that he doesn't have to be so good to his brothers anymore because he's not doing it on behalf of his father. So let's look at chapter 50, verse 15. 50, verse 15. Realizing their father was dead, Joseph's brothers said, What if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? So they approached Joseph, saying, Your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him and said, We are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good, in order to preserve a numerous people, as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. It's a really lovely moment there. Um, it, it's complex and it's rich. Here we have Joseph's brothers who have been shown so much hospitality in Egypt, so much kindness from Joseph when they certainly did not deserve it or earn it. Joseph has effectively forgiven them, but they cannot seem to either forgive themselves or trust that Joseph's forgiveness is genuine. They kind of hold in their minds that they did a really horrible thing. And they perhaps think they would have wanted retribution. And so why wouldn't Joseph also want retribution for what they did to him? And so even though Joseph has given them no reason to suspect that he has something else planned, the brothers can't help but let their own humanity shine through, right? The brothers are kind of showing their butt here in a sense because they themselves can't be gracious, can't reflect God's grace the way that Joseph has. They still believe that Joseph is going to do something ugly to them in the way that perhaps they would do to Joseph. And so when they come to Joseph, Joseph weeps because effectively Joseph is thinking, what is wrong with you? You know, why are you so crazy? Why can you not just simply believe God is good. And because God is good to me, I am good, right? I have been loved, so I love in return. Why must you expect or suspect that I will do something ugly or evil to you when God has shown nothing but grace to me? I mean, it's really a lovely moment where Joseph reminds them again that God is big, and God is using these bad experiences for the good. And so why shouldn't we accept that sometimes life is hard? Why shouldn't we accept that sometimes life does not go the way we want and that God remains with us in those moments and helps turn those moments into something good? Last week, I talked a lot about the way that God works. God is not predetermining the bad stuff. God is not planning the bad stuff that will happen to us. However, God is with us when the bad stuff happens. When we go through the painful moments, God walks right there with us through that pain. And in this moment, I think is beautiful, Joseph is claiming that he is part of God's work on earth, right? Sometimes we can imagine that God is this disembodied fairy or something, and we've got to go and beg God for good things when we can actually be good to each other, when we can see God in the face of others around us, where when we are doing well, 
when we are healthy, when we are strong, when we have calm and peace, that we can pass that along to one another, that we can actually look to each other in order to be sustained in the hardest periods. And not because any one of us can do it on our own, but because we actually have God present in us already. We know that a period like right now is not easy, right? Many of us right here on this call are able to identify with the pain of isolation, identify with the fear of potentially dying from this virus that is out there looming, right? We, or maybe it's just as simple as our children are bugging us and we have to actually teach them at home. Whatever that is, we all can understand in some way that life is not as easy as we want it to be. There are certainly variations of not easy, but life is never as easy as it could be. And yet, God is faithful. We, in our faithfulness, can be very well-formed in order to both embody and reflect God's faithfulness to us. Joseph, beautifully, in this moment, embodies God's faithfulness to his brothers, and by doing so, helps his brothers to grow in their own identity and maybe perhaps in their own faithfulness. So let's keep going. Let's look at verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were also born on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So Joseph made the Israelites swear, saying, when God comes to you, you shall carry up my bones from here. And Joseph died, being 110 years old. He was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Genesis ends with Joseph's death, Joseph's faithful death. And in a sense, Joseph is living into the vision for the future that he has inherited from Jacob and from Isaac and from Abraham. He gives voice to this concern that Egypt is not their place. They may be in Egypt right now. They may be in Egypt for a long while, but Egypt is not where they should be. They should be back in Canaan. God promised that at some point he would bring them back to that particular land. And so Joseph, in his faithfulness, asks that his family, his brothers, his descendants, make a promise that whenever they go back, whenever that would be, they will take him and bury him there too. So Joseph has already buried Jacob back in Canaan. Now Joseph is asking, whenever they go back, to take his body and lay him to rest there as well. We know that Joseph is embalmed, which would have been an Egyptian-style process. And so Joseph is set in a coffin and will remain in that coffin until the exodus until they leave Egypt 400 years from now. And when we study Exodus at some point, we will see that there is a moment when Joseph's body is collected and born with all of the Israelites out of Egypt in order to return him to the land of Canaan, which was promised by God. So I have one question here. Dottie asks, have there been any discoveries of Jewish mummies in Egypt? Oh, I'm not the expert to be able to answer that question off the top of my head. I will say I do not know of any. Um, when I have been there, you know, one of the interesting dynamics, um, how do I want to put this? Joseph should have been a big deal, Right? I mean, Egypt was a, was a culture that recorded its history. If any of you have been to Egypt, I, I have, um, you see this kind of record of history everywhere. Joseph and Moses are not recorded in any way in Egyptian history. So we have this story, and 
in all fairness, there's no reason, I mean, there's no evidence to doubt that something like this really did happen. But Egypt does not record either of these men, Joseph or Moses, in any way that we have discovered. Um, and so Joseph, having been number two in Egypt during this period, you'd think would have been recorded somewhere. And of course, Moses is discovered as an infant and then raised in the court as a prince. And he is not recorded anywhere either. It is entirely possible, plausible, that these stories were embellished in order to create something more inspirational or dynamic. And I don't mind that the embellishment, I mean, I don't mind that storytellers would have tweaked this or that a little bit to tell a good story. Of course, I don't mind. Um, if any of you know me, you know that I tweak stories um, and embellish them when I preach and do that kind of stuff because the point is not perhaps the accuracy of the history. The point is to elicit a response. And I would say that in a very similar sense, the Jewish storytellers constructing these stories are far less interested in literal history than they are in eliciting a response from their people, right? They want to elicit a faithful, strong, confident response from their Jewish brothers and sisters by telling the story in this particular way. They are not really prioritizing an absolute accuracy of historical fact. Um, I've got another question here from Michelle. Um, would Joseph die before his older brothers? And that we don't know is the answer. It doesn't make that clear here. Um, we certainly don't get other brothers' death stories. Um, the only two death stories we get here at the end of Genesis is from Jacob and Joseph. Um, it says that Joseph lived to be 110. 110 is a long time. Of course, time is not exactly explicit and literal in Genesis. And so effectively, Joseph lived a long life. We're told that he got to see the third generation of Ephraim's children. That's a lot of people. And that's a long time. And so it's entirely possible that Joseph would have been the last of his brothers to die. But the genuine answer, Michelle, is that we just don't know. All right. So we've come to the end of our Genesis study. And I'd love to just prompt you one last time to shoot any questions or comments to me as we tie this up. It's hard to believe that we have been separated from each other as long as we have. Um, it doesn't feel like we've been studying Genesis the entire school year yet, um, but here we are at the end um, and it has been a pleasure for me. This is one of my favorite things that I do um, each week and I'm glad that we've been able to continue this digitally um, for sure. So a quick note about next year. Um, I will continue this study. Um, I do think that you know, one of the learnings I've had from our quarantine is that it would be a cinch to make these lessons live online every week. And so why don't we simply have a live Facebook or whatever study, even if many of us are physically back together at St. Michael in the chapel, we can easily stream this live along with people sitting there and take some questions from all of you who either can't make it during the day if you're at your offices or work or caring for other people or you don't even live in Dallas. So my intention, barring something weird, is that when we get back together again in the fall and begin the next study, that we will actually do it digitally here. And so a few things I want you to note. If you have not ever been physically to our Bible study, please check in the comment thread for Monica Rosser's email address. It's mrosser at stmichael.org. Please email her your name and email address. We have a list of some 250 plus people that we write to each week as a reminder of Wednesday's study. And we'll hold that list together so that come next fall with the new school year, you will know when we will begin the next study. So I don't want you to be left out, especially those of you 
who don't go to St. Michael um, but may want to plug in with this study, do please email Monica so she's got your contact information and we'll make sure that you know when we begin the next study in a few months. Um, so I see that. <laughs> oh, that's my favorite question so far. Um, so Pam asks to explain the pictures on my wall behind me. Um, and so since this is the last class, I guess, of the year, might as well take a moment to do that. Um, let me just tie this up though. So next year, um, we are planning, or I am planning, to teach Revelation. Um, this time last year, I asked everyone to send me notes, or either physically or over email, about what they would like to study. And the number one most requested book to study was Revelation. And so last year I decided, if we want to do Revelation, we really need to do Genesis. Because Genesis and Revelation create this bookend of the scripture story and if you don't know Genesis well, you really can't understand Revelation. Revelation becomes this weird, obtuse, strange fantasy story. Um, and even though Revelation is totally weird, I mean, it is the weirdest, there is such good stuff that we can get out of Revelation. And I've had a few people since then tell me that Revelation is so intimidating that they don't want to do it, that if I teach it, they're not sure they would even plug in because they are just so afraid of whatever Revelation can bring. Um, but just know that Revelation is rich and great. It's delicious. It's so good. Um, and we can learn a lot from Revelation. So do not fear. Um, but it's a year later. And so I do want to open up to you an opportunity to effectively ping me with other books that you would like to learn, other books you'd like to study. And so we began this three years ago by doing Luke and then Acts, year one and two, because Luke Acts is kind of part one, part two of the same story. And this year, the intention was to do Genesis, to do Revelation next year. But I'll tell you what, if we get some kind of revolt, then we might not have to do Revelation. I love it. I'm telling you, you're going to love it. But if you just can't stomach it, let me know. So in the comments below or send Monica an email, let me know what you would like to study. If there is a book or a set of books that you've always wondered about, also note that it's God willing, next year is not going to be the last year I teach. And so we can continue for many more years studying other books. So it's not kind of a once and done. Um, I love this and we'll continue this next year and beyond next year. So it's not just a one opportunity moment. Um, let us know down below what you would like to study. Okay, Pam. So you asked. So the pictures behind me, as we're all kind of in the same boat here, right? All of us are quarantined at home, sheltering in place and if you know me, you know I've got three kids. Um, so between the three kids and Nicole and me, we can all be doing work at the same time, whether that's schoolwork or community work or church work, um, which means that it's very frequent that we've got five video calls going on at the same time. And video calls need quiet, right? You can't do a video call very easily when other people are next to you doing their own video calls. And so we've all kind of peppered ourselves around the house with a little bit of separation, enough to make this functional. And so because I knew I would be live streaming like this regularly, I wanted to be in a room with a legit door I could close. So this is our game room. And what you can't see on the sides and behind is that there are a million and a half games in this room. So this is not a game room with a pool table. This is a game room with the kind of games that we play, board games. I mean, I'm looking right now. We've got to have 500, 600 board games. We collect them. It is what we do. Um, and we've got all of our, and this is only the board games, people. All of the chips and cards and other things are in a totally different room because that's a different kind of game. And so we've got all kinds of stuff in this room and behind me is a little, oh, what is this called? Like a trundle bed um, where you've got an extra thing that can pop up and that sort of stuff for the kids if they've got friends that stay over and that sort of stuff. And up on the wall, we've got lots of things on these other walls, but right behind me that you've been staring at um, for the last few weeks, um, these are art 
projects that the kids have done that Nicole and I particularly liked. And so we've got self-portraits in the middle. So if you can see, we've got Brayden on one side and Lena on the other, where they were at some point in their elementary school career asked to do a kind of self-portrait. And those self-portraits are in the middle. And then on the sides, we have just two things that Nicole and I really liked. Um, the one on this side is a picture of a mask that I believe, yeah, Elena did that. I think it was for um, Dios de las Muertas for school at some point a few uh, years ago. Um, then on the other side is a picture of a dog that Anne Marie did in class. Oh, gosh, it's probably, she probably did that at the St. Michael Episcopal School, actually, um, multiple years ago and made it look, even though it was based on, I think it's based on a Westie? Oh, no, a Bichon, based on a Bichon, but she named it Zoe because that's our dog's name. Um, and so it kind of makes me happy that I have this behind me um, to see the kids' art like this. And I actually have their art um, displayed in my office, um, in a portion of my office as well, because they're good. And I love to see it. It makes me happy. So anyway, we're past time. This has been such a pleasure. I've loved being with you all on Wednesday mornings. I hope that this has been enriching for you. Um, I appreciate your time. I do not take it for granted. It is a gift for you to share with me. Um, and I hope that you have found some inspiration here and that you can carry this out into the world. Remember, you are not alone. God is with you no matter what happens. And you can help remind others of that truth as well. So may God bless you all in your future. Stay safe, stay healthy, know you are in my prayers, and I look forward to seeing you back for our study again in a few months. God bless you all. Bye.